Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined by Josh Blank today, research director for the Texas Politics Project. Happy sunny die interrupt us. Yeah, I was going to say, what even happened this weekend? Did anything even, Did anything yeah. even happen? I don't know. I, I turned my phone off. Anything happen? So <laughs> we are recording on our usual Tuesday morning. Uh, you know, in the last 20 hours, in the last 24 hours, legislature adjourned sine die only to be brought back immediately uh, with a start time of 9 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> the day of sine die. Uh, for what Governor Abbott called in his press release, quote unquote, special session number one, mm-hmm. uh, which came with a notice that he expected the legislature to complete action on, again, quoting many critical items that remain after he sort of listed what had been done right. um, and made it clear that he said s- several special sessions will be required. So, you know, for those of you in this world, uh, work in the legislative world and the political world in Texas. You know, I, there's been a lot of speculation through the course of the section, session, as there always is, about whether there would be a special session, when it would be. I think, you know, the consensus moves as it should yeah. contextually. You know, I think we spent a lot of time, you know, in the last third or so of the session saying, well, you know, he's going to call him back for vouchers. Right. You know, they'll probably do that at the end of the summer. Yeah, this is looking very different. And, and, you know, for the for the hist- for the historians or the for you know to just get to the historical question that will no doubt come up. Near as I can tell, the record according to the Legislative Reference Library, six special sessions. Governor Bill Clements in the nineteen eighty nine session called them back six times, and that lasted a while. The final special session that year ended in June of nineteen ninety. So that was the 89 session. It it ended about the end of this end of session time the following year. Now, there were some gaps in there that last, you know, so it's not like they were not perpetually in session, yeah. but still, you know, I'm just six. I'm just glad for our listeners that by the time they hear that, it'll be an appropriate time to take a drink. Yeah, right. I hope so. Day. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, what did the governor do? Um, you know, two items. For special you session know. number one. Yeah, in addition to this, um, you know, this promise of several special sessions, he also said, you know, we're going to deal with this in a very orderly way. And we'll talk about the messaging and the politics of that uh, in a minute. But I, you know, so the two items, and this is verbatim, property taxes listed as legislation to cut property tax rates solely by reducing the school district maximum compressed tax rate in order to provide lasting property tax relief for taxpayers. That is a real sort of stab in the eye at both houses of the legislature, but we'll come back to, we'll get that. And then interestingly enough, and the politics of this are also very interesting, border security. Mm -hmm. This is legislation solely for the purpose of increasing or enhancing the penalties for certain criminal conduct 
involving the smuggling of persons or the operation of a stash house. The the use of stash house, yeah. one of those one of those uh, kind of uses of language this session that we kind of watched. So um, I, I want to unpack those two things, but let's also backtrack a little bit to yeah. almost where we were seventy two hours ago, okay. right? You know, two of the three big issues going into the final weekend of the going into the final weekend of the session, two of the three big issues that were pending were not resolved as right. we went into the session. Now, it looked for a moment, I guess on Saturday, on Friday and Saturday, like things were kind of coming together and that the way that we'd been thinking about this a lot, like, you know, this kind of game of chicken between the mm -hmm. House and the Senate that had been going on was beginning to resolve itself. So, you know, the chambers managed to attach the major components of grid policy to the sunset bill for the PUC, OPUC, and ERCOT. And to go back to the last part, for those, you know, few of you that listen, right. last week I couldn't remember if that sunset bill was one or the other. It was for all of them. There we go. Right. So just to touch bases on that. Um, you know, and that, without going too much into the weeds, we've got a lot to cover. That covered a lot of the ground that had been yeah, we, coming up in the House and the Senate. Um, but nonetheless, the centerpiece of Republican campaigns from the top of the ballot to the bottom of the ballot in the, in the last election remained unaddressed, and that was property tax relief. And this is where the drama very much was in the last moments, even through the final day of the legislature as the lieutenant governor and the speaker, mostly lieutenant governor, were fighting on Twitter over, you know, whether they should talk or not. And there was a lot of reporters chasing chasing House members around the mm -hmm. around the Capitol as, as meetings were held, and they could not reach an agreement. And, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick in particular, you know, pretty directly nasty about the speaker on on Twitter and, and in a press release sense. Also, of course, no school choice or educational savings accounts, vouchers were passed. Um, you know, essentially stymied in the House, the last major play attempting to get vouchers passed involved attaching the ESA voucher bill to Ken King's HB 100 uh, in the, on the House side, which provided several increases in education funding, including a teacher pay raise. King himself said he didn't want it. The House generally just didn't go for it. So no property taxes, right. no vouchers. Right. <laughs> so, you know, here we are. So, you know, what do you, you know, what are your first thoughts on this? <laughs> God, I mean, on which part of it? I mean, it's yeah, sort of, you know, I mean, can we focus it a little bit more? I mean, I yeah, guess. I mean, look, I mean, I, I, you know, I think, you know, let's focus well, on let me, the, let me, you hear it. Can yeah. I, let me we focus on the politics. Yeah, let me go back a minute. I mean, I, I think, you know, it is interesting to your point, you know, going into the weekend. I mean, this has been sort of the kind of open question. You know, it's like they knew what was left that that seems seemingly they knew what had to get done. And it seemed like they were moving towards each other a little bit on a number of these things because ultimately, you know, in some ways, it's like they all agree they want to cut property taxes and the question just is the mechanism, right? Right. And, and it seemed like the House, by throwing in the $100,000 homestead exemption, the homestead exemption being the Senate's kind of main vehicle for this, you know, it seemed like they were kind of coming to the table and that maybe there would be something worked out there because ultimately, again, I don't think anybody wanted to walk home without yeah. a property tax reduction. I mean, and just for his little history on this, 
you know, at the last, at the end of the last legislative session or in the sort of in the, you know, in, during the special sessions of the last session, we polled and asked, you know, voters basically about how they rated the legislature on a number of things. And ultimately near the bottom was grid reliability and property taxes, and especially for Republicans on property taxes. And then, you know, kind of after that happened, I'm not saying, I'm not pointing to any sort of causality here at all. I'm really not. Not not long after that, the House, you know, there was actually the Senate quickly mobilized an increase in the homestead exemption. But even after that, generally speaking, there wasn't a lot of sense that, like, you know, they had done a good job on property taxes. So it's it's not it's not it's not unusual that this has become such a big right. big issue because it's been sitting out there yeah. for a while, and it's exacerbated honestly by the pandemic, by the huge increase in property values, all all these things. Right. But it is interesting since it's sort of it really is kind of I think in some ways a you know. An imperfect measure as a, as a broad measure could be of anything, but it's an imperfect measure of the dysfunction, right? I mean, everybody right. wanted to do this, and they just could not get there. Yeah, I mean, the politics of all this, I mean— I mean, the voters don't care what the method is. Well, no, they don't they don't care. I mean, I think, you know, they don't like, know. like a lot of us, they don't know, and they don't really—I mean, you could even put it in front of them— and they're going to have, you know, you're going to get some kind of response from some share of right. people. But I don't have a lot of confidence that people are going to, you know. Well, no, I mean, like we're I mean, I'll just be Make honest. a judgment call about the, you know, you know, I think we talked about this last week, you know, cutting, you know, the amount of your homestead exemption. Well, I mean, we, you know, look, I'll be honest right versus now. Versus your the appraisal cap. Let me just as a, as a, as a bit of metaphor, so I, you know, the worst. So when you're an expert in something, quote unquote expert, which we're sort of experts in whatever you want to say, you know, one of the things I think about being an expert is knowing what you don't know. Yeah. But the problem is, is the second you tell somebody you don't know something or you don't understand something, they're like, well, what kind of expert are you? <laughs> right. You idiots. Now. So we're not tax experts, but we look at this policy. And I got to say, when I looked at, you know, the, the 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 special session call from the governor, I had to look at this and say, OK. Maximum compression rate. Let me jog my memory. What are we? Is this the House version? Is this the Senate version? It's like, oh, this isn't really either, actually. Right. But here's the thing. And the main point of this is just to say, I'm knee deep in this stuff. And I still need to go back and look at a bunch of PowerPoints, look at some things to try to like wrap my head around exactly what's going on here. So as I said, if anybody else out there feels this way, like, oh, yeah, I basically get what the argument's about. Well, you're automatically like in the top 1%, top 2% (laughs) of all voters, because the question just is, you know, essentially, do they say they're going to lower your property taxes and that they did it, number one? And number two, when you get your property tax bill, does it feel that way? Do you notice? That's all that matters. And and how everything else in between is sort of just irrelevant, I think, for the most part, to most voters. Right. Okay. So, I mean, that's sort of one interesting thing, I think, about all the, the politics of this, right, which is to say, you know, I kind of understood the House-Senate jockeying on this in the context of kind of different, you know, coalitional elements, different timelines, I think, you know. Uh, but then the governor comes in and says, you know, in some ways, you know, why don't you go back kind of to the thing that you were messing with before and do that some more? Right. And the, by before, I mean in 2019, essentially. Yeah, and I, and I kind of want to talk about, you know— I, I'm not sure exactly how to get to that or or how to get to like the the next point of that. But yeah, I mean, like if we step back and kind of look at this, I mean, one thing that, you know, you know, I think I'm sure I've said on this podcast, I've said it, you know, several places, you know, anybody listen that, you know, in terms of the property tax relief fight on paper should have been very solvable. And I think there's a lot of people in the process that feel that way, that, Mm -hmm. You know, as they were going back and forth, and you were seeing this in the negotiations, yeah. at least such as we got communication from the negotiation about this, that, you know, you've got all these, you know, levels of numbers that you can adjust. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of knobs to turn on this. Right. And it's really a function of, 
how bad the relations are relations are between the Senate and the House mm-hmm. and between the leadership yeah. of the Senate and the House in particular, which we've referred to a lot in here. Don't really need to recap that. And, you know, clearly pretty terrible. Right. And so, you know, this has created an opportunity in a way, you know, for mm-hmm. the governor. And, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, the institutional pieces in here. We come back to that. And this is such a great yeah. illustration. A- you know, if you're you know, if you're listening to this, you're teaching a Texas government class, it's like it's gold. Yeah. Because you get to say, hey, yeah, you know, we talk about the governor being, you know, these different views of how powerful the governor is. But one thing we do know is that the governor's ability to intervene in an active way that exploits the public advantage that a governor has Mm -hmm. is really high at a moment like this. And the governor really jumped in there with both feet yesterday. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it was sort of interesting. You know, during the session, you know, there's a lot of attention when the lieutenant governor sort of, you know, hinted at the possibility of forcing a special session or, you know, and and everybody was sort of pointing to this as sort of like, well, you know, either you know, either look how powerful Patrick is or look how crazy Patrick is or whatever you want to say about it. Right. But the reality is, is that, you know, the, the dysfunction and, and the reality that they've gotten to the end of the of the, allot, of the constitutionally allotted time for them to do business on their own means that the governor becomes the first mover. He becomes the yeah. initiator. He also becomes the one who defines the terms of the debate. As you can see here, with respect, he's not just saying deal with property taxes. He's actually saying deal with property taxes in this way. Now, look. The legislature is going to have a lot of flexibility to interpret that call to the maximum flexibility that they can give themselves. But nonetheless, but this you, is pretty specific. This is pretty specific, right? Yeah. And so, in some ways, once the legislature has kind of, in this case, really, you know, failed, you know, to deliver on some of its promises, it actually comes to the governor. And honestly, it is just such a a win win for him. Either right. he's the one who initiates them to do what they were supposed to do to begin with, or. He tells them what to do and they fail and he gets to point the finger and say, look how dysfunctional these guys are. Right. And, you Which know, is not, look, a, I mean, it's not a great second choice, but you know what? As far as where the stink goes. Well, and, you know, I mean, I think that this is another one of those cases where the the differences in style between mm-hmm. the lieutenant governor and the governor is really striking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the lieutenant governor has been on, you know, pretty full on frontal assault on the House and on the mm-hmm. speaker. Yep. And, you know, he's not the first time he's done that, mm-hmm. you know, with this speaker or in general. Um, you know, the governor is less rhetorically combative yeah. with the legislature, but nonetheless manages to accomplish a very chiding tone mm-hmm. in his press release yesterday and in the communication. Yeah. That basically is sending the signal that, you know, again, we, I think we anticipated the governor would be able to do this, and he is in pretty stark terms, saying, you know, y'all are just doing a poor job of handling this. And so now I am going to step in, and I am going to modulate the agenda using my the special uh, election power, the special session powers, and, you know, I'm just going to pace this for you. Yeah. Right? I'm going to go, and we're going to we're going to do this a couple issues at a time. Right. It's It's... Patronizing? It's almost, it's almost, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I was going to say, patronizing is a good word. It's almost pedantic in yeah. the way that he, that he kind of just says, so we will just do these two things this session. It's almost like he's explaining to misbehaving children how they are going to behave. Well, and you know, and, you know, and part of that is, you know, the, what do they say sometimes, you know, like it's like the style is part of the substance, right? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, and I think, you know, the other thing is, is, you know, I think Abbott's clearly learned, you know, playing this game over and over again, right? I mean, I think, you know, in 2017, you know, we had a similar issue over the bathroom bill and some, and then, you know, Pac- and then Patrick right. sunk some important uh, sunset legislation. And so they need to come back for a special session. And Patrick did something kind of pretty similar to what he did, you know, yesterday. He said, okay, fine, you know, we need to come back. I think the governor needs to call us back. Here's a list of all the things we should do. Right. And last time, Abbott acted a little bit differently on this. What he basically was, okay, he called them back. I think there were 15 to 19, you know, special session agenda items. He gave them a month. They came back. I think they passed, you know, somewhere between eight and 10 of them. These are just kind of right. generic, what I kind yeah, of recall. Sure. And, you know, and then you kind of saw the way that played out was really, you know, I think the politics of that was really instructive because basically Abbott was able to say, yeah, you know, I called him back for all 17 of these things. You know, they passed eight. He got to highlight the ones he wanted to highlight. You know, you can thank me for that. And, you know, to the extent that the, that other stuff didn't get done. That's on them. That's on them, right? Now, he could have done that again this time, right? But ultimately, you know, I think one thing that's interesting about all this is, I mean, you can kind of see that, you know, Abbott is a pretty calculated player, you know, and I think he's being very, very selective in how he's approaching this, especially given the list that I think the lieutenant governor put out, which was an extremely political list. Sure. You know, I mean, just, I mean, not to say that the other one in 2017 wasn't an extremely political list, not to say that the agendas are generally not extremely political, but in the sense of like, you know, who are you speaking to now by, by this moment, just in this moment, putting out the list on the case of the lieutenant governor in terms of Abbott responding in whole or in part to it, there's sort of this immediate communication piece to this, but then there's a longer term piece to this, which is, okay, this all ends. There's a couple sessions. We'll talk about how many there might be, right? Yeah. They slide off into the election season, and then who gets to point to who did what and who asked for what and where the blocking was, right? Right. But that's a that's a later discussion. And that, and that stuff gets lost in the wash, other than in Republican primaries. But exactly. Even, even then, you know, it's a little, it's pretty diffuse. So, speaking of Republican primaries, another minor story since the last time we met is, uh. The matter of the looming trial of the for now defrocked Attorney General Ken Paxton. Right. So the big story that you know broke right after we recorded last week, and we could have led with this, but we're you know we're legislatively focused guys. Um, you know that broke between last week's podcast and today. You know the Attorney General was impeached by the House mm-hmm. of Representatives over Memorial Day weekend. Um, after it was revealed that Paxton's case was the much speculated upon, quote unquote, matter A, under investigation by the House General Investigating Committee, which listeners will recall has been very busy this session, <laughs> having, you know, just a few weeks ago, though it seems like a long time ago, expelled State Representative Brian Slayton. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, lots out there with much more to come on this. I mean, I, you know, the set piece for most coverage so far has been to underline the degree to which the Paxton affair, well, let me, I should rephrase that, I guess, the Paxton matter. There we go. Um, ex, you know, to, to, to draw from the Tribune exposed rifts or deep fissures among Texas Republicans. And I think that read makes a lot of sense, but, you know, just those fissures are so multiple and it's so unclear you know, which fish, you know, which, which cleavage is in play at any given moment. Yeah. Um, that, you know, this is, is, you know, it's a very complex thing. Now, look, we step back, very historical, obviously. Only happened a couple times uh, under the current constitutional regime. Um, so we're in this situation now where there's what we know and, and what we don't know about the current state of play. And there's, you know, there's something in common with this that, you know, helps us wrap up a little bit the previous segment or but that 
you know, there's really like a, you know, the, the, this kind of, I'm not sure exactly how to describe it. There's this very, both the internal view of this and the internal politics of this inside yeah. the institutions mm -hmm. and the external politics, the appearance, public consumption of this, what, how, you know, how the yeah. public might react. Lim limits to public consumption. The signaling around this yeah. in a public way, um, you know, coexists in a very complex way with what's going on behind the scenes and, you know, the, the motivations being imputed to people, what people's incentives are mm -hmm. inside the system, particularly when we start looking at trying to count votes in the Senate. Right. Now, the House was pretty unambiguous, which yeah. is interesting in and of itself. Of course, you know, Democrats overwhelmingly voted for this with just one exception. Um, Republican numbers, very interesting. 60, on the on the motion, to, you know, to rat, essentially ratify the, the, to pass the impeachment articles and send them to the Senate, 60 Republican yeses, 23 no's, one present not voting, and one person was absent with an excuse. And that also, I think, significantly included a record vote in favor by the Speaker of the House. Right. So, you know, in terms of the internal politics of this, you know, it's an uphill battle, and this is not... Mm -hmm saying that people externally aren't saying this, but it's a pretty uphill battle to call everybody that voted against Paxton a liberal squish and a crypto-Democrat. I mean, well, it's just well, pretty hard to do that. Well, I mean, I think, you know, even the fact that that is, you know, look, the predictable response. Sure. But also, you know, I think the idea here faced with, again, really overwhelming numbers in the House. And I think I want to make a real quick point here. The idea that somehow, you know, any speaker of the house was going to, you know, roll, you know, his or her own members to this kind of tune on a question like this, I think is, is really probably, I think it's overweighting the power of the speaker. Yeah. You know, I mean, ultimately the speaker would need to know that, the, that this kind of, that these votes existed. This was not going to be a vote in which it was going to be 60 Democrats and, you know, 30 Republicans, yeah. right? I mean, it needed, it needed to be something that looked like this. Well, right. And they need, and they needed to know in advance that it was going to look like this. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in the run up to the vote happening, you know, a lot of the discussions that I had with people that, you know, sort of understand this, I, well, I think was basically like, you know, this is not happening if the speaker didn't think he had the votes and I think, you know, and, and had the votes in a big way, not some marginal Dade feeling in the Democrats you know, impeach, well, impeached, uh, impeached uh, uh, Ken Paxton. Now, well, I think the dynamic. I mean, and that is not, yeah. not stopping the critics from saying that. Yeah. But yeah, and I think the dynamics in the House are, are illustrative, though, right? Of kind of what's going to be playing out going forward, right? In the sense that you did see, I mean, part of you know when we were talking after we watched the hearing that took place, you know, by the General Investigation Committee uh, with the, with their, uh, investigators, right. Early in the week. I mean, the question I said to you is, well, geez, like, how do they not impeach him at this point based on what they've laid right. out? Right. And ultimately the answer is, well, well, they did. But if you look at the, the argument from the opposition, you know, sort of within the Republican party here in the house, it sort of came down to a couple things. One, well, I didn't get to interview these witnesses. Do they exist even? Which is like, you know, okay. Right. Set that aside. Two, you know, this isn't the process we agreed to, even though this is actually the process we agreed to in the House rules, you know, so right. whatever. Three, 
you know, well, you know, Ken Paxton was recently reelected by, you know, overwhelmingly. It's like, okay, interesting. The you're overturning democracy argument, very Trumpian. Yeah. Well, and even that one, I would say is, is less even, I mean, there was a, I mean, that was a mix of your overturning democracy, but even just saying, hey, he's popular. And then, yeah. and then the other piece was, hey, you know, do you know that we just got a tweet from, from Donald Trump and, and an email from, from Ted Cruz? And again, two people who have no part to play in this process or not internal to it or not privy right. to it. Certainly not institutionally. Not yes. institutionally. But that in some ways, you know, but that is the argument now in the House, right? You know, again, I think the speed of this whole thing was, I think, I think of all the criticism, I think that was the most valid, right? right. I mean, in terms of not even though the committee had been working on this for all to the extent that, you know, they did issue yeah. the report, moved to, you know, the vote. That all happened very quickly. Now, I'll say one other piece, one other piece I'll add to this. Yeah. Even, you know, Representative Guerin going up multiple times to point out that the attorney general had been pressuring House members Leaning to another. And again, you know, somebody asked me about this this weekend, you know, what was the significance of that? I said, it's not significant, but it's it's raising a consistent theme that galvanizes the House, which is this outside influence that, you know, right. the governor, the lieutenant governor, lobbyists, special, whoever is telling the House what to do. So the idea of the attorney general who they're talking about this matter is calling people on the floor is like, it might, you know, sort of galvanize that idea. But what you're seeing here is on the one hand, a fact pattern that produced an overwhelming vote in favor of impeachment when sort of the external, you know, I think the external noise, the political noise was somewhat limited by the time frame. Right. And then you see this other thing, which is sort of the political argument and rationale. Now, what's interesting is as time goes forward, that political argument rationale, that public perception piece of it is going to become a bigger weight in the Senate trial, right? Now, again, not, not overtly. It's not yeah. like they're going to be presenting his poll numbers, you know, as part of like the impeachment hearing. But this is what I think senators are going to have to deal with at this point is what does it mean when we say, well, we've got this sort of, you know, very, very convincing record of misconduct on the one hand. But on the other hand, you've got the very popular former president of the United States saying, well, this guy's being railroaded. You've got, uh, you know, the, you know, Ted Cruz, you know, very popular state, you know, you know, senator saying the same thing. And also there's going to be an asymmetry in the public, right? Because ultimately, you know, Ken Paxton and his allies are more than happy to go out into the conservative you know, ecosystem and say, hey, this is ridiculous. You know, this is, you know, I shouldn't be, you know, this shouldn't be you know, happening to me. You know, these are all liberal Democrats, witch hunt, whatever. But, you know, there's, they're going to be hard pressed. To, first of all, the state senators are going to want to stay away from this because they're supposed to be jurors. So they shouldn't be making comments about this generally. I'll be, you know, we were talking about this earlier. I'll be interested to see how long that We'll holds. see how long that lasts. But but generally, you're going to see less of that. And also, I think, you know, the other part of this is, is there is a truth to this, which is to the argument, which Ken Paxton is a popular statewide elected official. He's very popular with the base. And ultimately, do you want to be the Republican House member who becomes the public face of the attempt to remove the attorney general? Not necessarily. I mean, so there's going to be some asymmetry out there to an issue that, again, we've talked about multiple times. Most people are not paying a ton of attention to. I'll make one more point on this, you know, and also this is sort of a weird situation in which the fact patterns, they get worse as you get more specific. And in, in some ways, usually the headline's the worst, and then you find out it's not as bad as the headline. This is a little bit different, I think, you know, from just thinking about from the, from the perspective of if I'm just a, you know, Joe Q public, I'm just sort of, I haven't been paying much attention to this. And then I see over the weekend, you know, Attorney General impeached, Ken Paxton impeached, and then I read the bot, you know, the, the sub, and it's like, well, you know, the Attorney General gave favorable access to the AG's office to a donor. A lot of people are going to say, yeah. Isn't that what they do? Isn't that what they always Isn't do? Isn't that what the donor's paying for? And then you say, like, well, you know, yeah, but like, you know, it wasn't like he just made a call, you know, he'll mobilize the office and say, is that really different? It's like, well, you know, yeah, but it was at the expense of a nonprofit they were supposed to protect and also may have handed over, like, 
you know, investigative materials to his lawyer. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess that is worse than, you know, AG's office helps donor. Right. But most people are not going to go that deep. Right. They're not going below the fold. They're not going to B-26. And so I think there's some aspects of this that as time goes on, you know, the political pressure could ratchet up if Paxton can hold together his coalition of interests and and defenders, which, again, I think is a big well, you know, question. we were talking before this, you know, there's this notion, and this is related to that, I think, the, you know, who wants to get it over with quickly and mm-hmm. who wants, you know, who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And look, this can only move so quickly. Right. So as of right now, the Senate is going to convene to, uh, to you know, to talk about rules for this. Mm-hmm. And the critical point here, the Senate is going to, you know, by statute, writes the rules for this proceeding. Right. Put a pin in that. Very normal. Just want to say this is yeah, how these things no. always work. Just for those of you out there, like, you know, this right. is, bo- these sort of bodies adopt rules for proceedings. So they'll, you know, they'll adopt the rules. And as of now, they're talking about, you know, convening to do the trial in August. Right. So, you know, it's going to be a long, hot summer of special sessions, probably. Maybe. At least one. And and then and, and this going on in the background. Yeah. Right? Let me make a let me make a low probability in terms of my certainty prediction because it's fun and who cares? I don't know if there's going to be like a ton of special sessions. Now, I could be wrong. We'd be seeing there'd be six special sessions. We could break the record. But part of it is, you know, Abbott is is smart with language. And, you know, multiple special sessions could be two. He'd already promised one before we got to this point right. on vouchers, and that would be at the end of the summer. You know, I mean, we were talking about this before. And if you look at like, you know, Patrick's list as a possible as a possible universe, and it may not be the list that Abbott's even can. I'm not saying that Abbott's yeah. looking at Patrick's list, but I'm just saying to the extent that they share priorities, which they share a number of priorities, you know, it's a place to look. You know, do you do I really see, you know, a special session in July that's totally focused on some of the sort of cultural, you know, conservative red meat issues when nobody wants the legislature to be there, number one. And number two, it would be the only thing to well, focus on. You know, they could have a special session in July on the things, the two items on the first special session in the House. Well, that's absolutely, yeah. Sure, no. I'm talking talking about expanding the agenda Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, what do I think about that? I mean, you know, I think to the extent that, I mean, I think you're right in that multiple could mean two. And there is, you know, to go back to the tone of that that message, um, it's like if, you know, if you're good kids, maybe multiple will only mean a couple – but I don't know. I, I I I am digging in for a longer haul on this. I'll just you know. I mean, I think. And, and also, if you go back and remember, if you look at that Clemens session yeah. where he did call six, I mean, there were gaps between some of them, and I think we will see that. That's possible. I mean, the thing the thing I would say is you know just look thinking about what was left pending out there. You know, the stuff that's out there is is pretty is pretty hot. You know, it's the sort of thing that you know if that was the only. I mean, we talk about this all the time, right? The legislature has a huge agenda, right? And people are usually focused on these bigger issues. But there's a sort of weird thing that happens where you're not of, you know, five, six, seven thousand bills, like 20 things that may or may not become law, kind of like maybe, you know, sort of yeah. keep people's attention. A lot of the stuff that's left, you know, if, if if that were just sitting there, if there was, you know, a July July special session that was focused on returning prayer and the Ten Commandments, you know, to the public you know, school classrooms, yeah. that would get a lot of attention in the state. Because there wouldn't it wouldn't be competing with much else. And I think, you know, I think Abbott is a little bit just more thoughtful about it. And the thing is, is I mean, we didn't really talk about this much, but the other you know piece of the special session call has to do with basically, essentially, creating a criminal offense in state law for crossing the border right. illegally. Now, there's you know you kind of look at it, it's kind of interesting because there's sort of a workaround. The kind of key thing is what happens if someone says I'm claiming amnesty. There's something that says, well, you know, that's not our problem, which is like mm, we'll see what happens. Right. 
But here's the thing, right? If you just think about this, you know, we've been talking about this a lot and we've seen it over the course of the summer. The number of times that Abbott, I mean, there's almost there's rarely an issue that could come up in which Abbott does not pivot it to the border situation. It's right. political gold for him. We've talked about it, blah, blah, blah. You've heard it. But if you think about what happens if they criminalize us at the state level, all of a sudden, you know, when, when we talked about this dynamic before, even though the state is not supposed to necessarily be dealing with immigration law, eventually, you know, sort of the ridiculousness of our commitment to it becomes part of the argument against how messed up it is. Yeah. So once we go from spending, you know, $500 million to a billion to $3 billion to $4 billion, every time the number goes up, Texas can point to that and say, look how much we're spending on border security. Yeah. Now, now add to that, look how many people we've arrested for crossing the border legally. Look how many people we've had to pay to lock up. Right. special facilities in the state. And if those facilities seem like a mess, well, yeah, look at the problem that we have. So it actually, I mean, in some ways it, it, it's and a- And we're having to do it because the federal government, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. And so and that creates the mechanism to actually increase, uh, you know, the nature of the crisis and use it in a way that doesn't necessarily just, you know, is not just about throwing more money at, although it will cost a lot more money to jail all these people. Right. But it is something there that, you know, if you think of, if I'm, if I'm, you know, honestly, if I'm sitting there and I'm an advisor to the governor, I think, well, if you get out of this and you force them to do property tax relief that you can claim credit for almost on your own, and you've been given away, you know, you've been given the blank check more or less for your border security force, plus now those people have arresting power. So they're not right. just kind of like hanging out at checkpoints, which has been a big criticism about this. I'd well, be pretty happy to wait till the end of the summer and do the vouchers. Well, and then, yeah, but I mean, I think... I don't know. I mean, yeah. you know, it's all, we're all just in the speculative world here, and I could be very wrong. You know, I think the other piece of this in terms of the border security part of that that's just worth adding is that in terms of the internal politics of all that, mm -hmm. you know, the border security bill that they want to push out, and there were two House versions and then the, mm -hmm. the main version, I think Senator Birdwell wrote in the Senate, you know, that pushes the House back. I mean, because what that means also is that the degree of cooperation with the Democrats that we've seen on some of these on some of the issues in the House mm -hmm. and the Democrats' role in supporting Phelan in the yeah you know with obviously with qualifications but in the broader universe of what's going on right now in terms of politics border security th this bill is not a good issue for that because the Democrats do not want this bill to pass and so this is a thing that will you know. Remind Democrats and Republicans in the House that they, you know, they, they they don't always get along, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would wonder is, you know, what what politically value or even politically competitive issues remain that would generate any sort of serious democracy that would would maintain that dynamic. You know, right. I mean, if you think about where we are right now in the session, the sorts of you know the options on the table for the governor within the, within the realm of reason. Well, the reason I raise that is because that actually then brings back, you know, what the political dynamic is of, say, you know, a social issue special session that would actually polarize the House more. Yeah. Right. Now, you know, that doesn't, yeah. you know, I mean, that, you know, I mean, my suspicion is on stuff like that. I don't know. It'll be interesting. There's really no point well, in me trying to get in the governor's head on this. But, I mean, you can make the argument either way for, you know, doing, you know, if he follows this kind of, yeah. I am just going to make sure that you kids stay mm. focused yeah. on just a couple of important things at a time. And he's wagging his finger yeah. at him. You know, part of the issue, you know, part of that may be to like pair the issues in ways that aren't thematic. Yeah. If he can avoid it. Um, 
I just don't think there are enough so issues. You don't, so that you don't necessarily, re, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's different ways that you can me- calculate the math on I th- that. I think it's probably because property taxes are the one that's not like the others because Democrats would like to lower property taxes too. They just don't want to take a huge hole out of public ed to do right. it. And, so, and it's a more, com- yeah, and it's, you know, it's just a more complicated public conversation that the public tunes into property taxes and then, yeah, but what about, you know, compression and then, you know, then they're, yeah, it's over, right? Um before we leave, I do want to go back and I like, kind of finish, you know, so, but that, and all that in a way does, you know, again, feedback to the overlay or where, where we're going to be with this, this trial of Paxton and the very complicated politics of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we talked about the timing of the trial and in terms of the things we know, you know, we'll see what the, you know, what the Senate is going to do about rules. I mean, I think. Yeah, can you explain why the rules are so important here? Because I think, I mean, I've been having this well, conversation I, over and over again and I feel like it's just. Yeah, well, I mean. You know, the rules are always important, obviously. And in this, you know, look, let's let's just get one piece of the rules that everybody's talking about. And that's, you know, how are the rules going to interpret the tension between the Constitution and the statutes or, you know, a possible tension between a Constitution that says, you know, the anybody, you know, who, who is tried in the Senate will be convicted by two-thirds of the senators present. Right. But then you've got statutory language that, on one hand, requires the Senate to create, you know, empowers the Senate to create rules for the proceeding, but also requires that all senators be present. Well, yeah, and what what I was thinking was, is, you know, and I was looking at, you know, the I spent a lot of time looking at this weekend, you know, it requires all senators to be present, and then if you look at sort of like, okay, now indent your bullet to make rules. Yeah. And then underneath that, to vote. Now, the one comes before the other, and the question is, what are the rules for voting? And, right. and look, you know, not, not to be too cagey about this, obviously the big, you know, the big question that, you know, the reporters really love and everybody loves for salacious reasons is what about Senator Paxton? Right. Senator Paxton, right. right? Who, you know, is going to be, you know, uh, on top of the fact that she's there, you know, a juror, quote unquote. Yeah. In the Senate, of you know, of a trial of her spouse, right? But also one of the counts involves Senator Paxton trying to, you know, one of the counts that involves his relationship with Nate Paul, which is at the core of part of this, is that he, you know, got Nate Paul to employ. Uh, somebody that he was having an extramarital affair with, and that's not news. That's been out there for a while, but that's in the language of the indictment of the of the impeachment articles. Awkward, yeah. right? So there's that, and then the other person that I find this much more interesting, mm-hmm. you know, and I I think eventually others are going to as well, and then people in this process. But I think publicly, this is something that I think people, you know, reporters have not really seized on, and that is what about Senator Brian Hughes? Yeah who is also mentioned, if not by name, but is mentioned in one of the articles of impeachment for his role in requesting the attorney general's opinion that benefited Nate Paul, that the testimony in the prosecute, the investigators have said was completely ginned up by the attorney general and his effort to, to help. Uh, is a straw man request? Yeah, you know the straw man requester is the yeah. the the line used. But in testimony, you know, in the testimony before the committee when the the investigators reported, they mentioned that you know, and this had already been also had already been reported 
that it was uh, that it was uh, Senator Hughes who had done the request, right. presumably at the BS. Now, it seems to me then that following the complaints of some of the House yeah. members, but in the trial where there will be witnesses, it then seems that one of the jurors very much is very likely should be called as a witness. And so, you know, are the rules going to deal with that in anticipation of such a thing? Right. You know, and, you know, there's a lot of scenarios that we can parse out here and we're going to have a lot of time to do it. So we yeah. don't have to parse every. But I mean, I think those are, you know, that question is significant. And, you know, just to, you know, to go to the math and the conversation mm -hmm. we have yeah. that, you know, as you, as you were saying, it's the denominator that matters here. So, you know, if Senator Paxton and Senator Hughes are to in some ways limit their involvement or recuse themselves, you know, does that lower the threshold? Does that lower the number of senators that are the senators present? Right. And the rules, and and does that, therefore, now it's not going to lower it a lot, but it would lower the threshold needed for conviction if there were, if two senators are removed right. from the denominator, it, it lowers it from 21 to 20. Now, that's not a huge difference, but it's, yeah, but anyone who thinks that they have a perfect sense of what the Republican vote split on this is going right. to be, you know, come talk to me because I don't believe you. Right, you because know, the things know. that we don't know, you know, among the things that we don't – so among the things that we don't know is how is that going to get sorted right. out? But that also points to, you know, the bigger political question here, which is where is Lieutenant Governor Patrick on this? Right. He has been – uh he has not handled this in the way that his national political ally, Donald Trump, has handled it. Right. Right. And that the lieutenant governor has not jumped out there. You know, he's been a lot nastier about about Dade Phelan. Yep. Um, than he has about about Paxson. But nor has he done what I think a lot of people might have expected, which is to leapt to the defense of somebody who, at least in ideological terms, is certainly more aligned with the lieutenant governor than either the governor or cer obviously certainly the speaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And so he has not had much to say about that, nor has the governor. Right. So, you know, this is where the outside perception inside game, again, really raises its, you know, its head because the, you know, the public communication is clearly going to be or at least so far, you know, and, and this has been actually, I shouldn't say implied. It's, Lieutenant Governor is pretty explicit in the little that he said is, we'll let the, pro, you know, we need to respect the process and let the process play out. There isn't an internal conversation I've had with people in the process about this that has not been 95% about who wins and who loses from the attorney general being removed, mm -hmm. the governor getting to, you know, name an interim replacement, yep. um, the opening up of the primary of, you know, competition for that office, yep. all of the ripples, all the rippling, you know, the kind of trickle down from that, that mm -hmm. if so-and-so is in the Senate, decides they want to, you know, they want to run for attorney general, and it's a year where they have to be on the ballot and they have to make a decision, you know. All of those things that happen when there's a vacancy and, you know, the rarity of those vacancies during the period of Republican rule. Yeah. And I think what'll be, you know, even harder to sort of, you know, probably uncover, but it'll be interesting to watch nonetheless imperfectly is, you know, throughout this legislative session and really, you know, leading up to this legislation that has been going on for a while, you know, there's been this sort of saying that goes around, well, the only there's only one vote that matters in the Texas Senate and that's lieutenant governors. Right. And to me, like, you know, this is an interesting 
test of that yeah. kind of power. potential edge case. It's a potential edge case. I mean, and again, I think the house was, you know, the house, and again, especially the detractors were kind of were playing up this fact that this is not a normal vote. This is not a normal proceeding. And, you know, to, to sort of, you know, we talked about we're starting to by the time of the rules on this, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, listening to, you know, listening to stories of what's going on there and reading tea leaves, how much the lieutenant governor attempts to influence the rules process yeah. in this, because I don't think that this is the sort of thing where the lieutenant governor is going to be able to say, this is where I expect you to vote on this one. And I'm going to punish everybody who doesn't go with me. Yeah. Now, look. I'm not saying that's not possible, right. but it seems a li- it seems highly unlikely. And I would say this: I didn't bring my phone, and I, you know, I'm ill prepared for the podcast. Forgive me, and I don't have the list in front of me of the senators that he, that they named yesterday to be on the rules, to be on the committee yeah. that's going to write the rules. But I think the general look at that committee was that that was not a particularly pro Ken Paxton committee. Now, you can read that one way or the other. You could read that it's the appearance and they're going to do what the lieutenant governor wants anyway. And so, you know, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, but I'm not entirely convinced by that. But we'll see. We'll see what that you all know, looks like. But it is. But that is something to watch. Well, you, you know what, but you know what it speaks to? And this is why this is such a such a mess. <laughs> you know? but, you why know, is this such a mess? Well, public corruption. No. <laughs> but, but I mean, like, really, really stupid public corruption is the reason this is a mess. But it's partially a mess because ultimately, you know, I mean, it's funny, you know, you know, talking to reporters this weekend about this, you know, they're like, yeah, no Republicans will talk to us. And, you know, it's like, yeah, like, well, you could talk to some Democrats. And the reporters like, yeah, but why do I want to talk to Democrats about this? And it's like, and that's right. Yeah. But here's the thing. There are not a lot of Republicans who want to talk to you either. And I said this before, but, you know, is this, you know, is, I mean, to your point, there's a bunch of political opportunity that a, that a statewide office being right. opened up in what is, you know, a pretty jammed up Texas, you know, in terms of these statewide Republican elected officials, you know, holding office, you know, that's very attractive. But that doesn't mean that there's a, a political you know, let's just say path to be blazed by being the Republican who's the face of taking down Ken Paxton, at least not yet. Right. And so because of that, it is just sort of, you know, there's this all this sort of arm's length stuff going on where everybody's like, well, you know, we'll let the process play out and, you know, we'll kind of see what happens. And, you know, but you're not, I don't think you're going to see a lot of people necessarily trying to sort of be at the forefront of. Well, I mean, I think except that. I mean, the House is interesting because the House has to prosecute the the case. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, I think I think you'd be pretty hard pressed at this point to not say that Andrew Murr and Dade Phelan right now, you know, are going to have a pretty hard time denying the fact that they looked at this and decided it was it needed to be done. Yeah. I and mean, to me, you know, and again, maybe I'm being too generous, but I think, you know, there's just a, an easy case to say, like, look, you know, when Paxson came to them and said, yeah, I want three point three million dollars for this. And they said, you know, isn't there an FBI investigation going on? Like, right. do we really want to, like, be blank checking this thing? And, you know, Paxton to his, you know, honestly, I think to his detriment doesn't seem to have, you know, developed the relationships or maintained them or maybe never had them, you know, in the legislature, even from his time there to kind of go back and and get some people to go to bat for him. Well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I think one of those relationships that goes back to their time in the House together is Senator Hughes. Should we stop there? (laughs) So, you know. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, you know, it's so interesting to kind of think about this and talk about it, you know, when you're right, when you're, you know, sort of looking at yeah. it from inside the process and when you step back, I mean, mm. look, I, I don't think, and I could be wrong about this, but, you know, some of this is based on reporting and, you know, 
I am hard-pressed to think that when the lieutenant governor and the governor look at this and have watched Attorney General Paxton, that they both don't think he colored outside the lines. You know, I mean, I just don't, I mean, I just don't, you know, and look, you know, part of that is the obvious, like, this is why the House was arguing about process rather than Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, of of all the arguments that I said they were, his defenders were making, none of them had to do with the merits of the claims or anything like that. But on the other, you know, but the other side of this is that this has been going on for so long and the politics of this in terms of, you know, something that we haven't really mentioned that in the state, I mean, look. Republican Party of Texas, Matt Rinaldi, mm-hmm. that universe of of Texas Republicans have come out unambiguously defending Paxton and attacking the House. Right. Now, you know, I was thinking back to after, I think it was after the 2021 session, mm-hmm. when some of the, you know, the so-called grassroots you know, I, I always feel like that's a little deceptive, but, you know, the activist Republican groups on the right were criticizing the lieutenant governor, and he got kind of horsey and pushed back and said, you know, some people are just never satisfied. Right. And so there's a willingness, you know, an awareness that, like, the pressure from those groups that are, you know, more or less aligned with the lieutenant governor, you know, can be a pain in his ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And from a guy that doesn't like people being a pain in his ass. Right. And, you know, so how this is going to shake out, I think, you know, you know, at some point there's a political benefit in making sure that you don't appear overly beholden to certain groups. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm just very curious in how the lieutenant governor is doing the math on this. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously everybody is right now. You know, and I don't, I, you know, I don't have a good sense of it. And, you know, I think there's a lot of speculation going on. You know, all things being equal, I think it's not crazy to think that that vote in the House could be the leading indicator of a general sense among elite Republicans that we're ready to be, we're ready to throw this guy under the bus. Yeah. Because he richly deserves it. Oh, but there I, are countervail but there are countervailing pressures and I just don't know how they're going to weigh those pressures well, out. And you know, look, the good thing, well, you know, the good thing if you're if you're one of the people that wants to push Paxton out whether it's for highfalutin ethical reasons or brutal self-interest. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the fact that you have so many Republican votes in the house and you know, people can stand up and you know, shake their fists and say we're going to primary every one of you. Yeah, well, right. you know, have at it. Yeah, right. You know, um, I just don't know that that's going to last. And I don't know what kind of I just don't know how the lieutenant governor is going to parse it out. Yeah. And I think, you know, just in a simple sense, I don't think the lieutenant governor or the governor necessarily want to be on a ballot in, you know, 2026 with Ken Paxton on it. Right. I mean, like just I mean, say what you will about the Dutton vote. You know, Harold Dutton's house rep was, you know, present, not voting. But he did say directly, hey, Democrats like. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't you just rather have Ken Paxton on the ballot? Yeah, and I think for Republicans, there's this sort of piece of this, which is say, you know, especially for the statewide, it's like, you know, again, everybody and look, and people can get to the same place with different motivations and interests and yeah. sort of, you know, they're different paths, right? But again, you know, if you think like if you're, you know, again, if you're Greg Abbott, if you're, you know, you know, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, I mean, do you really want to? 
essentially use your own political capital to save someone who has less political capital than you do, first and foremost, right? Who, you know, again, between now and the time of the election, not only, you know, might be charged with like federal crimes, but could just continue doing, I mean, honestly, stupid stuff. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the other thing about all this. I mean, I think, you know, just, you know, know, we didn't go over the details much and everything. That's fine. I don't think we have to. But I think the one thing that came out of the hearing, you know, to me, at least, you know, someone who's followed this, you know, last week was was not so much that these things happened, but the fact that at every point along the process, there were one or multiple senior attorneys within the attorney general's office saying, you shouldn't do this. Right. You can't do this. This is illegal. Don't do this. And he ignore, overrode or fired them. Right. So, I mean, ultimately, you know, even an impeachment vote, I mean, I think you have to add, you have to be sitting there as an elected official, even if you you know, have a lot of sympathies with Ken Paxson and say, well, you know, can I trust this guy? Like, to, yeah. you know, if we give him, if we let him off here, what is he going to do? Yeah. I mean, this really I mean, I mean, it's, you know, in, in pure political terms, the House going forward with this is a bid that shifts the risk reward proposition here pretty fundamentally. Yes. You know, and in terms of this whole I mean. You know, it also, te- you know, so far the successful strategy for Paxton, mm-hmm. at least, you know, up until the weekend, has been delay, yeah. delay, 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 and continue to kind of behave. And the House brought that up a lot during the hearing. Yeah, with a certain degree of hubris. And, um, you know, so now we get to the point of, you know, where that delay may actually not help him now. Because the because the salience of it is in is going to increase publicly and something that you know you were talking about the Fox News universe and all that but the other piece of this yes, that we this were talking about make, before yeah. that's good to this add is important. and we know this you know firsthand <laughs> is that you know local television news is going to be all over every development in this the political reporters are going to love this mm-hmm. they love it already and you know you can say that's because. They hate, you know, they're liberal or whatever. I think it's more just because, look, it's a conflict it's, story. It's, it's also, a corruption story. It's a historical event. It's a historical event. I mean, you know, there's reporters are going to be interested in this, and we know that a lot of a lot of Texans what get their political news from local news. We actually asked about this yes. in the December poll. December, like, yeah. Was it December, yeah, mm-hmm. and. You know, that's a little bit of a wild card here, I think, yep. in terms of the idea that you can just – that Paxson can just continue to play out the clock and hope that it breaks his way. I mean, I think the terrain on that tactic may have changed. But, you know, again, well, I, we have prominent examples of that working, well, but eventually it works until it doesn't. Well, I think that was part of it, though, is that, you know, I think part of what the the, the, the general investigating committee – part of the point they were making was, well, look, he's – this is the, the, the legal and, and public strategy, which has been the same, basically, which has been – to question the motivations of all the, of the of the complaints against him and to delay any sort of sort of let's say under oath hearing about these allegations basically once that became a request to the house to spend 3.3 million dollars to continue basically right. to keep that out of a court of law i mean I, you know and again this is sort of being cheeky but like that just becomes a $3.3 million campaign contribution from the Texas House to Ken Paxton because he doesn't have right. to deal with this. And I right. think that's where, you know— Or in I'm, terms of the federal investigation, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say accessory, but it makes it look conspiracy? like— Conspiracy? I mean— You kind of helped, yeah. right? That you were willing to go along with this. And, you know, and I, you know, I, I'm using the word hubris, and I think that's, that's really what is kind of at work here in terms of just going, no, we'll just have the state pay for it, mm-hmm. you know? 
I mean, I haven't talked, you know, I've talked to many people in the process that just kind of scratch their head and go, why didn't he just pay for that out of his campaign funds? Because there's a much better way to get campaign and, funds, and apparently. And cauterize that wound and, you know, reduce your exposure. And, you know, there's a I don't definition think, of hubris somewhere. I can't remember who it is. That's the overweening pride of the damned. Just as a side, I'm pretty sure I've read that that was not a legal possibility. Yeah. I mean, so that I don't, so that, that whole kind of like, well, why doesn't he pay for himself or whatever? I mean, this is one of those things that comes up. It's kind of like why the argument that like, well, Ken will, you know, there can't be a whistleblower suit against Ken Paxson because he's not really like this thing. It's like, yeah, but the suit is against actually like the state the, is yeah, a capacity. Yeah, the state was the plaintiff in the suit. So it's it's just, it's not like you can just jump in and be like, I'll pay for that. Because if you think about it, there's going to be a lot of misdeeds that could be, you Right, know. That, that mechanism, that's, that's probably a good point. So, I mean, that sounds, I mean, it sounds reasonable. And that's the, I mean, I mean, again, you know, I said one of the things I think was really interesting about the long arc of this was when, uh, you know, Speaker Phelan early on before the session said, yeah, I don't know how comfortable I feel, you know, about this. Yeah. Right. I mean, to me, in some extent, I think, in, and the reaction I thought from the person, this is a minor thing, but I thought the reaction was like almost sort of, it almost missed the point, actually, of what that was signaling. It was sort of like, oh, here's the state of Texas is not going to pay these whistleblowers, even though they were wrongfully terminated. That's so Texas. It was kind of like, I think at yeah. the time that was kind of the feel. It wasn't like, it wasn't, I mean, again, it take, you know, flat, you know, fast forward a few months. It's like, oh, no, it was because they were uncomfortable with the whole thing. Right. And I think, and that, you know, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I, there's, yeah. sort of a, there's sort of a torty response to it, you know? Yeah, like, there was a lot to read into it, I think, at the time. So I think with that, We've been going on a while. It's hard um, not to. We could go on for another. <laughs> we will be, yeah, and we didn't even really talk about, you know, we didn't even really round up the session, but I think we'll have time here. We'll have time to do that. And, you know, we'll be doing more polling sooner rather than later, and which we'll have more to feed into. We haven't canceled all of our summer plans yet. What the, what the public response looked like and and to what they have and have not done and, and also to, to this. So so with that, thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks, to, as always, to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast on a service, we usually post these podcasts with some supplemental material. And, you know, in this one, I think we can probably put some links to some of the documents that we've discussed and maybe even a couple of polling results. Find all that at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Uh, click through to the polling section. There's a blog section where we post a lot of this stuff. So thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.